So we're going to look back this morning at the passage that we read uh, in our ongoing study of Mark's gospel. We begin to see structures and patterns of what Mark, through the Spirit of God, is trying to do as he uh, unpacks and unveils the character and the person of Jesus and applies him and the truth of Jesus to our hearts and our lives today. And I think that's very, very important recognition uh, as we study Scripture. It's a living, breathing Word. It's, there's nothing like it. And it comes into our hearts and comes into our lives. But I'm going to ask you to consider another statement from Scripture, from the Bible, from God's Word, uh, a statement that's made in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 10, just as an introduction to make us think a little bit about our attitude to Jesus, okay, our attitude to Jesus Christ. I'm sure, I think it will be a challenge. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that's immediately got to spark your interest uh, or uh, make you uncomfortable in your seat or make you wonder about life and where I am in life and what I'm doing. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In, in many ways, it's a statement that should change the whole of our lives. It should actually change everything about what we're saying and thinking uh, today. And in many ways, what it do, a statement like that, what it does for us, it triggers this reality for us that what we do, you know, we gather together, but how much thought did I put into coming today and preaching? How much thought did you put into coming to church today? Is it just a routine? Is it something that we just go through? But in a sense, it should change our thinking because if that statement is right, then what we're doing here is, is all or nothing. Well, if it's right, it's all. <laughs> if it's wrong, then, well, let's just close up shop just now because that is an incredible reality, isn't it? It is a kind of all-or-nothing statement that we need to consider, uh, because Jesus is either who He claims to be or, and who Mark has spent all this time that we've been looking at revealing Himself, or we should just ditch Him. Let's just ditch Him altogether if it's not true and if what is being told to us about Jesus is not accurate. Because we are called, as believers, we're called this morning to accept by faith Yes, by faith, of course, and that the Bible is God's revelation of Himself to us. Uh, that's what we're called to do. Because if it's not that, then it's just a mishmash of religious musings that may have limited value or uh, significance, but is of no real, powerful, life-changing, dynamic relevance to us. And it may be that subconsciously we think that because if we go from here and the Word of God itself makes no difference to our day-to-day -day life as we move out of here, it's maybe re highly relevant for this one hour, but if it has no relevance from in our relationships, in our thinking, in our workplace, in our decisions, in our actions, then it may be that we've lost sight of who Jesus is, and that is absolutely easy to do. So we struggle sometimes, don't we, with the, the whole idea of God's authority uh, and Jesus Christ's authority. We find it difficult to, well, I find it often difficult to, to dovetail grace and love, which we speak about a lot, with authority. We love the idea of love. Well, we all love the idea of love. But we recoil from a love that claims our submission and its 
has its own authority, because these are two tainted words in our society. They are canceled words. We can't use submission and authority because of the, the uh, connotations they have uh, with things that we recoil against. Now, we recognize that authority always has to do with power. And in our minds, so often, and in my mind, so often, power is either, either something to be afraid of, something that's abused, or something that we want for ourselves. And submission, on the other hand, is just weakness. So you've got power, uh, and you've, you've, sorry, you've got submission, and you've got authority. And these two things are dovetailed both in that claim of Jesus, and we're going to come and look at it in a minute. I'm getting there. It's a long introduction. Uh, uh, we're going to get to this passage. But we find these two things absolutely dovetailed in the life of Jesus Christ. So you've got Christ who makes this incredible, significant claim that he's uniquely God and that he holds both perfect love and justice and power together in his infinite being without abuse. We know all about abuse, power. We know all about it in the church. We hear about it all the time, and we know it exists. But here we have Jesus Christ who says he holds perfect power and also love without abuse. And also, that he, secondly, that he claims absolute authority over every living human being, including all of us in here today, as, your, as our Creator and as we saw in that verse from Corinthians, our ultimate judge, the one before whom all of us will stand face to face. Now, this passage is about Jesus meeting with different people uh, who are questioning his authority. And uh, his answers are soaked uh, with significance and uh, wisdom and revelation about himself. And I hope it triggers some deep responses uh, in your own life and mind about whose authority that you submit to, and, and why or how, how you regard Jesus, and whether He's maybe just a comfort blanket that we can pick up and drop as we need Him, or if He's the sovereign King of kings that He claims to be, who is worthy alone of our worship and of our, of our submission to His authority. Now, I recognize that perfect love and perfect justice uh, under His authority is, is a hard concept to imagine, because we don't see it in this world in which we live, but we accept it by faith, and we come to Him uh, recognizing uh, who He is. And as we recognize that, we do so knowing that there's a great cost to that. It'll be a great cost to you in your workplace, in your home life, among your fellow students, uh, wherever we are, to uh, submit to the authority of Jesus. It's not something people do. And uh, yet, in our lives, we're slavishly following our instincts so often, or slavishly uh, um, just submitting to our own unpredictable selves or to the volatile crowd around us. So there's three different ways in this passage. It's neatly broken into three. You can see that with the headings, because uh, Mark's introducing us to three different groups of people who are undermining Jesus' authority. We're going to look at that and then look at Jesus' responses quickly. So, first of all, the first section is the section with the leaders, the Herodians and the Pharisees, who question Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. And they're questioning his impartiality, really, in, in, in many sense. So, you've got this unholy alliance 
um, insincere conspirators coming together to try and uh, trip up Jesus Christ. And they very much together reflect the political situation of the day, which we all know about that mainly, usually if we've been here and heard the story about Rome occupying uh, Palestine and uh, the Jews being uh, under submission and subjugation to the Roman Empire. And the Pharisees hated the Roman occupation and all that it stood for, especially Caesar, who claimed to be a god and whose image on the coin that they were going to share shortly it was a, a, an invitation to recognize him as a deity. And then the Herodians, on the other half, they were a group of people who um, were kind of um, uh, political fly-by-nights. They were people who enjoyed the situation of, of Roman authority because they were tended to be rich and powerful, and they benefited from uh, the ruling classes of the Roman Empire uh, being there. They're the kind of tax-collecting people and uh, others who shared authority, even though it was kind of a puppet authority uh, in the uh, region uh, of uh, Palestine. So, you had two, different very group, uh, two very different groups coming together uh, with different motives trying to trip up Jesus. And they thought they would find out that he had no authority over their particular group. Uh, he, he must have some ulter- ulterior motive that they could expose by asking them this question, you know, uh, who should we pay this money to? Should we, uh, should we uh, give authority to Caesar or should we give authority to God? And they thought they could question any kind of rightful authority he had by bringing him down uh, to a human level and expose that he uh, was only significant for one particular group or one particular uh, idea. Now, it's interesting that that, that's no real different uh, difference. There's no real difference in what many people say today, that Jesus can't have ultimate authority over every different kind of group. There must be a motive behind what uh, he's doing, and also uh, people take him and use him their own way. So, many people will argue that he's just a historical figure who's been hijacked over the centuries by whatever cause uh, benefits from having Jesus uh, as their liberator. Many people will say he's just a Western savior, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? or he's the God of the political right, or he's a Protestant God, or a Catholic God, or a liberation theological God. Uh, But he can't be everyone's God. He's a free church God. He's a Baptist God, uh, a God whoever needs him on their side. But he's not my God. He's someone else's God. He has no authority over me. He might be the Herodian's God. He might be the Pharisee's God. He might be some uh, God of the poorer classes of Palestine, but he's not my God. He's not my authority. He can't speak on my behalf. And that's what they were trying to expose, that he had no authority over them. Which brings us to the second group, uh, the Sadducees in verses 18 to 27, who ask about the resurrection with this rather strange illustration that they bring to him. They try to um, expose his lack of authority by ridiculing his theology, by ridiculing what he believed. Now, in this interaction, we, we, I certainly don't know, and I don't think the commentators know a great deal about the Sadducees as a group. We don't really understand exactly all 
that they stood for or who they represented. But one thing we do know was they didn't believe in the resurrection. We're told that here in this passage as they questioned him about the resurrection. They denied the reality of any kind of life after death. Okay? And so what they did was they took this Old Testament law that was in the uh, law of Moses and from Deuteronomy 25. It's called the Leverite Law. Uh, and it's um, a bit of a weird law for us, a bit strange for us. Uh, this whole idea of the duty of a brother-in-law if a uh, woman was married to someone and didn't have children and their husband died, then the, bro- the brother of the husband was, was legally duty-bound to come uh, and to marry her and to... Uh, so that there would be uh, children and an inheritance and a future from them. And then they, they go on to this ridiculous idea of all seven brothers. Uh, maybe that's where seven brides for seven brothers came from. But uh, this idea, now, who, whose husband would she be uh, in the resurrection? Now, I know that the law itself seems a bit weird to us, but in the ancient Near East, the passing on of the family name and the inheritance was hugely significant within that uh, tribal um, reality. Uh, very important in, in lots of different ways, in economic ways, in social ways, and religious ways. Important for the widow as well as, as for the family. But they used this, this Old Testament practice to mock uh, the whole idea of the afterlife and give us a who's, well, who's who of the afterlife? Who's going to be the, uh, who's going to be married in this context in the afterlife? I wonder if that's any different again from today, you know? The whole idea of mocking the, the theology, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of God's Word, uh, to make it seem ridiculous and to make it seem unbelievable. And it may how many people will mock the idea of the resurrection itself if we take this particular example. You know, how can, what's it going to be like if, if all these things are going to happen? How can it be that there will be a resurrection? And they mock uh, Jesus' authority to teach such things. And it's, uh, I don't think it's very different today. An uncreated God. Ah, oh, who created God? Surely you must have an answer to that. God coming in the flesh. The virgin birth. Miracles. A crucified you, physical resurrection. Sex confined within uh, a loving marriage. The sanctity of the unborn. Heaven and hell. All of these things are used by many people just to mock the teaching and mock the authority of Jesus. Seriously? Seriously? You're asking me to submit to the author of these fantasies and his authoritative claims on our life? It's ridiculous. It's mockery, which is what the Sadducees were doing to deny the authority of Jesus over them. And then lastly, we come to uh, an interesting um, interaction between this uh, religious leader, one of the scribes, uh, who had heard Jesus' responses and who asked him about the greatest commandment. And uh, Jesus gave this remarkable answer about love being the love, uh, loving of God and the loving of one another, which truly remarkable, remarkably beautiful answer uh, to the one question about the one command. The two are fused in together, loving God and loving one another. And now, uh, we may differ on this, uh, and I'm probably coming to a slightly different conclusion, uh, but I wonder whether this scribe was… Jesus says he's nearly in the kingdom, okay? So, it's a wise answer 
he responds to the wise answer of Jesus uh, in a good way. But I wonder whether also with him, because he's not yet in the kingdom, Jesus says, whether there's a sense in which he's at this point still patronizing Jesus a little bit as simply being a good moral teacher and not the divine son. It's quite interesting, isn't it, this section? Um, he's, he's called in verse 34, not yet a follower. There is a degree of insight, but we're not told that he right, gets up and follows Jesus. We're not, we're not given an indication yet that Jesus is the king of kings that he would follow. He may have gone on to do so, we hope and pray. But he liked the moral teaching of Jesus and the wisdom of Christ. But it it almost comes across in this little section that it still seemed to be on his own terms. You know, he asks Jesus the question, and Jesus gives the answer, and he says, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Yes, you've got it right. It's almost as if he's saying, Jesus agrees with me. Now, that might be a bit harsh, and that might just come from my harsh, unforgiving spirit. But it, we don't know exactly what uh, was in his heart. But it does seem to be that He's going to Jesus and is measuring Jesus' answer against his own standard. And, and maybe that comes a little bit more into our own context rather than the other two, which are, are more overtly antagonistic towards Jesus. Maybe in a, in a church context, this is more uh, common, that people are sympathetic with the moral teaching of Jesus. They like everything about the Christian faith. There's a sympathy there. They may find that they live uh, more or less by much of the moral code and conduct uh, that Jesus espouses. But within their own framework, it's almost like they take bits of Jesus, and if it, if it, it matches their own framework for living, then that's great. And they can say, yeah, that's great what Jesus teaches about that. That fits in with, with my thinking. And admire his wisdom, but, but to follow him, to submit to his authority, well, that's just going a bit too far. That's maybe just a bit fanatical. I'll just be a Christian from a distance. I, I don't need his people. I, I don't need to be under his authority. I love some of the things that he talks about. But there's not that submission to his lordship and to his authority and to his salvation and to his, uh, his right to our lives as the one before whom we will all stand one day. So, that there's these three interesting situations. Now, briefly, let's look at uh, Jesus' three responses and apply them into our own hearts and situations. As he is challenged about his authority in different ways, Jesus answers beautifully in these passages. With regard to the first uh, situation paying taxes to Caesar. There's an implicit teaching that he gently, he gently pushes out towards them. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, and they marveled at him. Now, there's a definite play on words uh, and on, on what he's trying to get across here. There's a play on the word image, because we're told that uh, when he's given the coin, uh, about paying taxes to Caesar, um, he says, bring me, bring me a denarius, bring me a coin. And he says, Who's, whose inscription is on it? Whose likeness and inscription? Now, in Greek, these are the words that are used in Genesis of us being made in the image of God. 
And he, he's, he, then he goes on to say, render to God what is due to God. And in a sense, Jesus is saying, well, look, you know, the Pharisees, the Pharisees hated Rome, and they, they hated paying taxes. But it's interesting, I think, as a little aside, that Jesus doesn't have a coin himself. We don't know why necessarily that was the case, except that he didn't really have any money, it seems to be. Uh, but the Jews actually obviously did. Uh, and so they thought it was, it was good enough to have the coins, uh, but yet they despised everything that Rome stood for. But anyway, the image of Caesar was on this coin, and, uh, and Jesus, in a sense, pushing the authority uh, uh, and the leadership of Rome into its rightful place. He says, well, if it's his coin, and he's paying taxes, then pay to Caesar what is due to Caesar. But this image, he says, it's only an image on a coin. It's it's fading, the coin will be thrown away, it'll be handled and mishandled by sweaty, grubby hands. But he says, give to God the honor that is due to him because we are made in his image. And that is an image that can never be wiped away. He's worthy of our allegiance because he made us and we are made in his image. He's our only God, he's our only creator, we're made for Him and by Him and to be with Him. And as our Creator, we owe Him our life. Every single one of us owe Him the breath that allows us to be here today. And we will stand before Him on that great day, as will Caesar, whose image as an, as an idol was on uh, these coins. And here is Jesus Christ who's taken on that image standing in the flesh in perfection because we have seen our image before God and our relationship with God broken and marred, needing restoration. True of every living soul. And He has taken on our flesh in order to be our Redeemer, in order to make that day a great day. Consider why Jesus took on flesh. And consider that Jesus, at this point, shortly before his death, had his mind on a greater debt that he was about to pay on our behalf as they talked about money and taxes. He was thinking in his flesh of a greater debt that he was about to face. So, you are an image bearer is why Jesus Christ has the authority over us today because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But the second response is brilliant um, when he speaks to the Sadducees. And it, 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 Mark finishes with it. It's very dramatic and it's very uh, stripped back. He just says, you are quite wrong. You're just quite wrong. That, that's, that's the response that he gives. You know, on the resurrection specifically, he says, you're badly mistaken. Could be, you could be uh, translated, you've greatly gone astray. So in this question about the resurrection, he appeals to the, the Bible itself, the authority of the Bible's revelation, the power of God, the nature of heaven, but it becomes his own, doesn't it? You read that again, read that section again. Jesus is speaking with incredible confidence about heaven, where he's come from, and uh, about uh, the resurrection. Days before his own resurrection, he could say, when the dead rise, this is what will happen. 
Not only is he enfleshed as he is, bearing our image and the brokenness that, on our behalf, but he is, he is about to die on the cross and know uh, that in his power and in the glory of his strength and in the depth of his love, he is going to defeat death and on the third day rise. Remember, we've looked at that recently. Three uh, different references to the resurrection that he gave to the disciples, and they didn't understand it. They didn't know what he was talking about. And his anticipation, uh, sorry, his resurrection anticipates and seals your resurrection and mine if we trust in him. And it's just such an incredible reminder of the authority of Jesus over death and over truth that he claims with confidence and that he says is going to be the reality shortly as he defeats the power of evil and grave and death on our behalf, as he becomes forsaken so that we aren't forsaken. That's the reality, and that's the beauty of what he is revealing by his authority. And it's a, maybe it's a wake-up call sometimes to us about the complacency of, with which we treat the authority of his love, which is incomprehensible, and the glory of his justice, which is inscrutable, but here he speaks with authority uh, about who he is, uh, about his relevance to every living being, every living human being because we are made in his image, and authority because he has power over death in the resurrection. And lastly, uh, we come to the, the greatest commandment that this scribe asks him about. And uh, in, in responding to this, again, Jesus is basically saying, I'm the king. You're not. I'm the king. But isn't it interesting in his response that the guy gives a, a pretty good answer? Pretty, well, he, or he agrees with Jesus' good answer, and he responds himself uh, with a, a, a good answer. And Jesus says, yeah, but you're not far from the kingdom. Now, only the king can say that. Only the king only the king can make that authoritative statement about the heart of this guy. I can't. We don't really know his heart. We can surmise whether he was sympathetic or whether he was just catching But Jesus could say, you're not far from the kingdom. Great, gentle, but yet powerful words. And he's responding to this question about the command uh, with this great recognition that there's only one entry point to eternal life. Only one entry point to the kingdom, and it's Jesus himself. Because Jesus himself, as he stands here, is the only one who loves God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loves his neighbor as himself. He is the living answer to this uh, question that he gives. He is this expression of love that none of us can reach up to, and none of us can meet, but he does it in our place so that we can come to him and be forgiven because of him taking the cost in our place, the substitute. We get his righteousness he receives and takes our guilt upon himself. He is this love. He is this perfect love that's worked out through his death and resurrection. Is that a great verse? Isn't it? Greater love is no man than this. And he laid down his life with his friends. That's what gives him authority. Stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ because he's the authority because of his deep 
and powerful and substitutionary love in our place. He is the one who alone loves in this way, but who gives that love to us so that we might be saved. There is no other name. There's no other name. Can you name one? Given among men by which we could be saved. Is there? Is there anyone else? He is the king of kings. And he speaks as the king of kings here about his lordship and about the significance of love, uh, loving God and loving one another. It's a remarkable passage. Um, and following all of this, nobody asked him any more questions because his, his answers were so authoritative and they marveled at him. And that's the challenge that we find in a passage like this. It's all about the authority of Jesus. Not the authority of the church, not the authority of an individual, not our own authority, but the authority and the claims of Jesus Christ. Go back to the opening verse that we read from 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Not the judgment seat of popular thinking or of the latest zeitgeist of the day, or even our own standard of judgment, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he, he unpacks his authority for that in these passages, as we are made in his image, as he alone has defeated the power of death, and he's the one who only uh, can live uh, the love of God uh, that enables him to be our redeemer and therefore the king of kings. And as we take Christ for ourselves in life, then that judgment seat of Christ will hold no fear for us whatsoever as our Lord and Savior. Because when we meet him on that day, he will smile at us and he will just say, welcome home. Which is a remarkable truth and it's nothing to do with our own goodness or our own efforts. It's as the fruit of his resurrection and his salvation He'll welcome us home. He will smile. And the opposite is fearful. And so we must consider his authority and his love and his claims over our lives. Let's pray. Father God, help us to understand you better. Um, may time not dissolve the significance of Jesus um, help us to understand uh, the time and place in which Jesus lived and the reality of that life and the uniqueness of his claims and of his death and of his resurrection. And deepen our faith, we pray. Uh, strengthen us when we struggle to submit to your authority. Help us to see clearly that if we don't submit to your authority, we're always still submitting, Lord to someone or something, often just ourselves and our own wisdom, but often the fear of man, the desire uh, to be part of uh, something bigger that's human, a desire to think uh, in ways that other people think and be submissive to their thinking or their ideology. Uh, remind us of that, Lord, of and open our eyes to see where, even as Christians, maybe especially as Christians, we uh, wrongly submit to 
uh, authority that is not yours, especially when it's just ourselves, when we uh, think we know better than Jesus. How often is it, even in our prayers, by what we're asking for, we're thinking, Lord, if only you, if only you would give us what we think is right, because we think we know better, and, and because our authority is actually in ourselves rather than in you. So give us faith, especially in the things we don't understand and the things uh, that are not revealed. Give us faith to trust, even in the many circumstances we find ourselves in in this world. Give us faith to believe that you're good, uh, that you're just, that you're loving, uniquely, uh, infinitely, and that one day it will, all, it will all make sense to us. So remind us of that, and remind us as, as time passes so quickly uh, of the reality of uh, being accountable uh, to our Creator, to our Maker, to the one who has come, reached down to redeem us, which we'll remember in these next few weeks as we come towards the end of the year, the Advent season. Remind us of all these things, we pray, and make Jesus very real to us through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our worship, in our hearts. Amen.